mentioned, too many men on the field, Saskatchewan. Gizmo has a block and the sidelines. He has not stepped out, he may go all the way. He needs one block and he'll do it easily. Promise mess I wouldn't do this. McDavid stops up, what a move, shoots, scores! It's The Outsiders, episode 45. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. Brent Griffiths along with Robin Brownlee. How you doing today, Robin? Outstanding, Brent. How about you, man? Great. Lots of things to talk about. Great guests coming up on the show today. We're going to be chatting with Eric Dehatchik, friend of both yours and mine, longtime hockey writer, in fact, he's so long time, he's in the Hockey Hall of Fame. We'll get to Eric coming up in a little bit. Okay, before we go too far, I don't even know where to begin with this one, but let's talk about the longest game of hockey, which happened at Shakers Acres to the southeast of Edmonton in bone-chilling weather through the entire th- the entire thing. They're generating funds for cancer, primarily the Cure Cancer Foundation, and uh, they played for 252 hours. And they generated $1.84 million, and it's all been earmarked for the Cross Cancer Institute in Edmonton. But the way I always view it, if you generate a penny for cancer research in Vancouver, it helps somebody in Winnipeg. If you generate that fund in Calgary, it helps somebody in Yellowknife. Money into cancer research anywhere is money right back into cancer research. But to see the effort the guys went through and unbelievable temperatures, where the pucks were shattering when they were hitting the goalposts overnight. It's an unbelievable story, Robin. You know what? No matter how many times you go and see it or you read the reports about it, it's almost incomprehensible to me what the people who involved in the world's longest hockey game go through. And what you hear from Dr. Brent Sake, the organizer, Every time you marvel at that is, this is no big deal. The people living and fighting cancer, that's a tough road to hoe. You, you know, I mean, these guys, I've been out to every game since they started, taking my son out there, my wife, Anna Lynn. You stand there, and honestly, it's just in awe at the effort that goes in. All those people have a story. All those people have a reason for doing it, and you get what we have here. 252 hours, $1.84 million uh, raised it's a remarkable story, uh, and sadly one that until we get on top of this thing, uh, the story isn't over yet, but bless every one of those people who take part. Well, having gone through the cancer thing over the past year, the one thing that I've come to realize is that we are making some headway, but it is in finding cancer faster, earlier. Yeah. Therefore, we have a chance to treat it, and in some cases, beat it. And I, and I love that. But anyway, just congratulations to everybody. There were about three times. We, we just went through about a 10-day span of brutally cold weather in Edmonton, like we do every February. And twice I caught myself bitching and whining about the temperature. And I just, and I thought about it both times that I started to get a little complainy about weather. And I thought to myself, guys are out there playing at Shakers Acres for the longest game of hockey. I should just shut the F up. 
Just suck it up. Anyway, congratulations to all the guys. Fantastic work. Let's get to some of the other topics. The Edmonton Oilers took on the Winnipeg Jets in a matchup that was very, well, it took me back to the 1980s. It was a Smythe Division matchup where you just, it was going to be last shot wins. This particular case, that's almost accurate as the Jets come away with a 6-5 to five win that was highly entertaining, but sure showed a few flaws on the part of both hockey teams, Robin. Holy cow, is that some bad goaltending and some bad defensive lapses with both teams? I mean, you know what? It's a crowd pleaser. But when you call a game like that a crowd pleaser, you can almost guarantee that somebody's going to get shit in the video session the next day because, well, fans love these kind of games. Uh, coaches aren't so big on them when it comes time to break it down. It's funny you should say that because I thought that last night, and just as I thought that, they showed both coaches, and I think it's probably a good idea that they were masked up so you couldn't see how pissed off they were going to be at that effort. Be a lot of work put in at practices today, that's for sure. And uh, the series is not done as the two teams will square off again in Edmonton coming up on Wednesday night. And I'm guessing we'll probably see it a little tighter, but for the most part, uh, let's take a look at some of the bad and the good things for the from both teams. Let's look at Winnipeg first. Connor Hellebuck, I know that he saw five go by him, but I think he's looking better than he was early in the year. However, their record does not indicate that he's been struggling at all, but... He did win the Vezina last year. I tell you what, he's going to have a game or two like that. I mean, he's put set the bar so high with how he's played in the past. You know, he wasn't particularly strong. There's no question about it. Um, you look at a game like this and everybody looks at Mike Smith, and I get it. You can't give up four goals on 11 shots. It's not good enough no matter how you slice it. But there were some giveaways. Um, there were lapses there. Y you know, one bad goal for sure, you know, where you think got to have a save there. But you turn it over. Dominic Cahoon was guilty of that. Um, Kyler Yamamoto was guilty of it. You know, good young players, it's going to happen. But when it, when it happens in the same game, plus the guy in goal isn't sharp, you get what we saw last night. I'll tell you, though, one thing that stood out for me, Bryn, and I tell you, he's coming on strong. Uh, Evan Bouchard. Yeah. He had, what did he have, eight or nine shots on goal? Uh, you know, hey, he's not going to arrive and not have some rough stretches from here on out. But, man, he looks like a player when he's on. So give the kids some time. This is a guy who's going to be a player for a while. There's another kid out there that, that's having a pretty good go these days, and his name is Connor McDavid. Picked up two oh, assists yeah. in the game last night, now sitting at 499 points. He's one point shy of becoming the fastest active player to reach 500 career points, but he's going to have to do it in a few games here. Otherwise, he'll drop to the second fastest, I think. But nonetheless, everybody says, what's wrong with Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl? Well, they'll be fine. Wouldn't be too worried about them. And for the Edmonton Oilers, when your bottom six is now contributing the way they're contributing, that's a good sign. They've just got to get it all tightened up in their own end. And Winnipeg also a little guilty in their own zone of being a little lax at times. But, boy, they've got some high-end guys up front as well. Now, this is the fastest active player, correct? 
Yeah, yeah. I guess we have to reword that. Maybe the quickest. I don't know how you want to word it, but he's still blowing by, guys. I don't. You know, when when people are getting nitpicky about him, you're only getting one point in a game. We're back to the Wayne Gretzky era, right? Where people said, "What's wrong with Wayne? He only got two points tonight." I think people should probably just chill out a little bit on that. Hey, uh, a couple other things. Uh, Joey Moss was honored during that game because they took the 50-50 pot of which they do extremely well here in Edmonton, other than that one or two occasions where they were being overwhelmed the moment they went online. But they've got that all sorted out now. But the 50-50, the winner last night, taking home a cool $1.2 million, all going to charitable organizations that Joe was uh, very associated with, which is great. That means that in the community, $2.4 million was thrown at the 50-50 last night at a time where people think that money is a little hard to come by. But I think you, I think people are very, very careful where they're throwing their money these days. And the orders and the football club, in fairness, have given people some great causes to contribute to. But, wow, $1.2 million for somebody. I, it isn't me. <laughs> well, the I did not win either, Bryn. I, I, I did... Uh click on the zoom link this morning to do the podcast after all. So that's probably a good sign. <laughs> yeah. But uh, you know, that's terrific. And I tell you what, we all know about Joey Moss. It's wonderful. You know, the Oilers also uh, just a quick shout out. Uh, one of their bigger uh, pots also uh, within the last couple of weeks went to the mustard seed. So they are pumping a lot of money into this community, uh, to, to uh, places that matter, and to see it go to the charities that Joe Moss was affiliated with, that's terrific. That's money well spent. And the Edmonton Football Club did a 50-50 over the weekend. No football yeah. being played. They just did it. And the proceeds went to the longest game of hockey guys. So uh yeah. To both of the organizations in the city of Edmonton, uh, thank you for uh, contributing to the community the way you do. Coming up toward the end of the podcast today, we'll talk about the paranoid northern teams. We'll get to that. This uh, northern division is probably going to go right down to the wire. The Toronto Maple Leafs look legit, but how legitimate are they to win it all? We'll talk about that. Tom Brady's throwing the Lombardi trophy around. I was quite entertained and also got a little tipsy. I have no problem with that. We'll talk about that as well. Before we get to our guest, you know what? I think I have found us a potential new sponsor, Robin, but I am not sure whether or not this is a good fit. And I'll tell you why afterwards, but I just want to play the commercial for you and then I'll get your thoughts on it and we'll kind of go from there. Are you ready for this one? Outstanding. Okay. A new sponsor. A potential new sponsor. Like I said, I, I'm, I don't think it's going to fit, but we'll see. Here it is. Budweiser presents Real American Heroes. Real American Heroes. Today we salute you, Mr. Professional Hockey Organ Player. Mr. Professional Hockey Organ Player. What would the great game of hockey be without you and your giant organ? It's a big one. Sure, the action on the ice is terrific, but it's watching you manhandle that giant organ that really makes us cheer. Yeah. For 60 grueling minutes, you run your fingers up and down your giant organ. Over and over. That, sir, takes real stamina. Oh! 
So this bud's for you, oh magic-fingered maestro. Because while some men dream of playing professional hockey, all men dream of having a giant organ. You're the Okay, I'll tell you what. I'll get your thoughts on it toward the back end of the show. Okay, just uh, just chill out. Don't say anything. We'll uh, we'll play it out a little bit later on. But we do tell you that we have a sponsor currently, and that is the Macintosh Group at Remax River City. The team at the Macintosh Group very excited about the latest promotion they have for sellers. They're providing professional photography, three sixty degree tours, video, and floor plans of all of their listings. But they've now added something that they call a coming soon campaign. So what they do now is they start marketing the listing seven to ten days before they do any showings. So you get a chance. It's kind of a coming attractions type thing. Anyway, the idea is to create a little extra excitement for the home and create a list of people who would like to take a look at the property the day it goes up for viewing. And uh, you can get a chance to get in there and take a look at it. The, The result is there's more showings and less time. And also, it helps with the higher sale price, too. These guys have got it figured out. If you'd like some more information, get a hold of Brent and anybody at the Macintosh Group for more information. Tell them the insider sent you. And then, as I always joke, no, tell them the outsider sent you. And that, <laughs> that'll get Brent laughing. Anyway, to reach anybody at the Macintosh Group, give them a call at 780-464-0075 or check them out online at macintoshgroup.ca. Up next, we're talking with Hockey Hall of Fame writer Eric Tuhatchuk. <music> Joining us on the Outsiders today is Eric Tuhatchuk, a member of the Hockey Hall of Fame, previously on the selection committee for the Hockey Hall of Fame from 2002 to 2017, I believe. Longtime writer at the Calgary Herald back in 78, I think, uh, Globe and Mail in 2000, and now a writer at The Athletic. Just read your article, by the way, on the London Lions story, which I absolutely loved, and Eric is joining us on the podcast today. How you doing? It's a long time since we've seen you. Yes. Well, you're looking pretty good, and Thank I was you. a little bit worried about you, so... Um... I'm, I'm very glad to see that you've got a headset on and you are doing work in the media again because we were concerned about you. So you look good, and thank you for inviting me on. I'm looking forward to it. This, this is be a fun chat. This <laughs> is long overdue, I'm telling you. Robin and I have been saying, we got to get a hold of Eric. We got But you know what? This year has just been so crazy with the way yeah. – well, not only this year, but last year, obviously. Yeah. You just kind of get all caught up, but – I don't even know where to start with you. Well, I'll tell you what. Let me start with the story I read on the London Lions that you wrote uh, a few weeks ago, which I got to tell you, was so entertaining. I laughed uh, so much because it was like slap shot in Europe. Tell everybody about the story that you just wrote. Sure. Okay. Well, uh, actually, and I would tell you that this uh, this goes back almost to the very start of my my journalism career because what happened was, okay, so in 19... the Flames relocated to Calgary from Atlanta. And I was assigned, you know, the the beat. uh, I I just started at the the Calgary Herald. And I'd only been in Calgary for two years. But one of the very first people I met when I moved to Calgary was Doug Barkley. So Doug Barkley was the former NHLer, played in Detroit, coached in the Detroit system for a while. When I moved to Calgary in 78, he owned the junior team in town, the 
the Calgary Canucks. And as the low man on the on the totem pole starting out, you 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 know you did everything, including tier two. The the, the the senior guys did the Wranglers, the tier one team. So I knew Doug in '78, and then in 1980, Al Coates was named the director of communications for the Flames. He also joined from the Detroit organization, and so for 20 years, basically, I traveled on the road with these guys. And, uh, you know, we would go out, you know, before games and, and have a, you know, social dinner. And, and once in a while, about the third or fourth glass of wine, Coatsy and Doug Barkley would start telling stories about the London Lions. So London Lions were a team that in 1973-74, Bruce Norris split his farm team. He put one in Virginia Beach, USA, and he moved one to London, England. And they played out of Wembley Pool, which was constructed for the 1948 Summer Olympics. It wasn't. It was the the venue that hosted the uh, the swimming events, and uh, they put a wooden floor over the thing, and they played ice hockey there. And Bruce Norris had this idea that he wanted to start a European professional league. This was 1973, so you know Salming and Hammerstrom had arrived in the NHL. It was a year and a change after the Summit Series. And it became clear to audiences in North America that your level of ice hockey in Europe was, was really good. So they recruited half of these farm hands, dumped them in London, and they went on the road. And, and it, as you say, it was like slap shot in Europe, except they have wives and children aboard, too. So, you know, it, that was the, the most fun part of the story was I, I spoke to Nancy McCann, who was the wife of Rick McCann, the team captain. And she had a three-year-old, they had a three-year-old named, named Macau. And she went on all the trips and, and went through all the adventures. So that's what it was. It was, it was, it started out as, as you know, Barkley and, and Coetzee telling these stories over wine in the 80s. Me in the back of my mind thinking, this is a story that I want to tell. And then last June, when we were sort of all locked down in, in the pandemic, I finally called up Coetzee and I said, we're, none of us are getting any younger. He was 73, you know, Barkley was 83, I think. And, uh, and we had a socially distanced interview, lasted about three hours. And we also had a few glasses of wine during that period of time. And I chipped away at it and uh, we thought I was ready to go with just their two voices. Decided, you know, I want to contact some of the players found that they were very enthusiastic about retelling all of these stories about something that had happened 47 years before. And, uh, you know, the, where I work right now, the athletic is, is really good because we're, you know, strictly online. So you can write long. It would have been a very difficult story to tell in the newspaper era because newspapers like to chop things down to the bare bones to make things fit. Um, that luckily doesn't happen where I work right now. So, yeah, so the you know, we finally got around to publishing the thing in January of, of this year, and it did. You know, thank you very much for the kind words, but it was it was very well received. It was it's heartening. As long as I've been in the business, have the sort of positive response to a story that that particular story had um, was uh, you know was 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 great. It was really fun, and, and as you say, you know, the the problem you know in the world that we live in right now is there's not a lot of really good news you know we're just kind of living day to day and there's not a lot of things that make you laugh out loud and this did because it was one adventure after another and so it was a fun story to, to tell and I gather that a lot of people really enjoyed reading it too so well Eric you know we we talked about this before we came on you talk about this story and it's wonderful and you talk about the change between writing online now as compared to newspapers i mean i guess you could have done a a four parter in the broadsheet back back in the day yeah. but 
you mentioned like 78. I remember as a, what I thought was a young guy, like I, I thought Eric DeHatchik would be about 80 years old now <laughs> that, or he was a child prodigy because when I was at the Kamloops daily news with Ian McIntyre, who's uh, at Sportsnet now, we were relatively young guys. And I remember looking out to Alberta uh, and, and, and Ian and I would say, man, I wish we could write like, like Jim Matheson, and Eric DeHatchik, and we could get to those big newspapers one day. Wouldn't that be great as we spent another Saturday night at the Denny's and Kamloops or, or whatever? I look up your bio, you're only two years older than me. So was this a child prodigy thing with you or what? Well, no, I was really lucky. Um, I went to journalism school in London, Ontario, uh, University of Western Ontario, and um, and. And one of my classmates was a man who was 10 years older than me named Pat Hickey, who you might recognize because Pat is 76 and still works for the Montreal Gazette. So this is this was actually quite a, an interesting story because Pat was 33 and he was trying to get his master's degree. So it was, a, it was grad school. We were, we'd all done our undergrad degrees and he wanted to teach journalism. So he was planning to exit the business in 1978. Imagine that, like 43 years ago. And... Uh, but he was covering the Argonauts full-time for the Toronto Sun. So he, he'd cover Argonauts practice at 10 class in the morning. Argos would practice in the afternoon, drive back to, to Toronto, cover Argonauts practice, write the, uh, a story, and then come back to London, sleep, and then back in class. So he, he, he did a master's degree, and he covered a football team full-time. So in 19, and he's, you know, full-time sports writer, and that's what I want to be. So Pat through George Gross, who was the sports editor at the Toronto Sun, got me accredited to the Grey Cup in Montreal that year. That was the Eskimos, Alouettes won the ice bowl. Remember the staples in, in oh, the, yeah. and I had an auxiliary press box and myself and Pat and a woman in our program named Sue Coates were there. And we, we covered the Grey Cup for our, for our university program. We, we did, we published a newspaper, but we also did a little television show and we did the Grey Cup with all that old, old audio equipment. I'm hauling it around like a pack mule. Anyway, I met George Gross at that Grey Cup. George started to enlist me to write part-time sports in the London area as a student. And then the following summer, um, I was part of a group of, that included Scott Morrison and Jim O'Leary, both who ended up full-time reporters at the Sun that George was using, you know, as freelancers. And so that got my foot in the door as a sports writer. And I was 22, I guess, at the time. And from there, I was able to get a full-time job in Calgary. And my first job was covering skiing. So my job interview with the sports editor, Lynn Watts, my parents are from Austria. And he said, what do you know about skiing? And I said, well, actually, you know, skied all my life. My parents are from Austria. Skiing is part of our family tradition. He said, well, I need a guy to come out here and cover skiing. This was the heyday of the crazy Canucks. It was Ken Reed, Dave Irwin, Steve Podborski, Dave Murray, that. And he said, none of my guys want to cover skiing. They all want to cover curling. Well, I thought he was making a joke because, of course, I'm a city kid from Toronto. So I laughed and I realized, ooh, that might have been a mistake. He goes, no, all my guys want to cover curling. I need a guy to cover skiing. So I'm thinking to myself, I'm a young guy and I'm moving to Calgary. It's right beside Banff, the greatest skiing in Canada, and they're going to pay me to do this. So it, it didn't take me very long to say yes. Moved out and and started out. And so that was my first full time job. I'd done some part time work before that. And then what ended up happening again in a very lucky sequence: the Canadian Olympic team was resurrected in the summer of '79 by Father David Bauer and put into to Calgary. And that was Robin. You remember that team? That was 
Brian Anderson was on that team. Randy Gregg was on that team. Yeah. Kim Nill was on that team. Paul McLean, Timmy Waters, uh, it, you know, it, all a whole bunch of people that ended up in the hockey industry for as, as long as I've been in it. And uh, and I went to Lake Placid with that team. They didn't do very well, but that American team did really well. And so, you know, as a kid, I got to cover the Miracle on Ice. That was fantastic. And then, you know, when the Flames moved to uh, to uh, to Calgary from Atlanta, I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. And I was 24 covering the NHL full-time, which was ridiculous. The only thing more ridiculous was that the other guy at the other paper was Steve Simmons, and he was 22. So we were a couple of guys that were really in over our heads, didn't really know what we were doing. We're learning quickly on the job, I think. And uh, But you're right, it does feel like... Uh, like we've been at it for a long time. My my colleague at the Athletic, uh, Sean McIndoe, who goes by Down Goes Brown. My son's favorite line that, that that he ever wrote was that that I started covering hockey when I was seven. And it's not quite true, but but I get where he's coming from because it does feel like I've been around forever. Hey, hey was was Claire Drake the coach of that team, by the way, in that year? Yes, he was. Okay. Yeah. So the coaching staff there was three coaches: Claire Drake and Lauren Davis, also. Uh, uh, you know, well known to people in the Edmonton market because he scouted for the Oilers extensively, and Tom Watt. So there was the the three of them were the were the co coaches of that team. Uh, Tom ended up in the press box doing the the television for the uh, for CTV during the, those Olympics, and was Lauren and, and Claire on on the on the bench. But yeah, that's how I got to know Claire. Like that was my first um, in, encounter with with Claire Drake. Or, you know, as you know, a very fine man. So. You know, Eric, we we're here together this morning i've got to tell you another lesson that it's truly a small world and how we end up where we end up you mentioned pat hickey i was sports editor sports photographer sports department at the weekly peace arch news in white rock bc in my first job arnold palmer came up to open a course he'd design across the border in blaine Pat Hickey was there, and I think he, I want to say he was the sports editor at the Sun at the time or the yep. province, one of the two. I begged him for an internship there. No chance. He brought in a fellow named Howard Chimura, who stayed there forever. I went to Kamloops for four years, out to the Edmonton Journal after that. And I remember my first time in Montreal, it was like, Hickey, you dirty bastard. Why didn't you hire me way back then? I ended up here anyway. We had a good laugh of it, but uh, it just shows that sports world can be a very small world, isn't it? Yeah, no, 100%. And and, and that's what I found was like, I really, you know, like Pat and I are still in touch. And uh, it's amazing to me that, that he is still at it. Uh, because I remember, you know, covering you know Argo games with him again as a student intern, so not you know not full time, and uh, and watching him right on deadline, and and Pat was like a hunt and pecker, right? You know, so so he'd be, and, and in those days we, you know, you say this to people now, and, and they think that you're in the front page with Walter Matthau and Jack Lemon, but my first job we were working on typewriters, like this was before computers became so ubiquitous and uh and that was always one of my big claim to fame by the way at journalism school i was the fastest typist i passed out of the typing class in one day because i learned how to type in high school at neil mcneil a hockey school back in, in toronto where i where i went to high school and uh but i never forget you know like pat was right there with me and he did it with he's left-handed right so he's using this finger and 
and the thumb on the space bar and to watch him work and write these stories on deadline. It was a real education. It was, it was an opportunity to see what the real world was like. Because journalism school was great. I learned a lot. I'm glad I went to, to Western. Um, it, uh, you know, I learned a lot about the theory of, of the business, but watching Pat work and then, and then sort of just being immersed in, in events like the Great Cup at, at a very early age made you realize that the real world was a little bit different and maybe a little bit more complicated. And there were things that you could learn just from, from watching other professionals work um, that, you know, you just drink that in as a young guy, right, Robin? I mean, you just drink that in. We, we, we've got a, you know, we've got a, we'll talk about some of the stuff that's happening right now in a little bit, but this is a, Beautiful segue into talking about Frank Orr, who just passed away. And uh, I think the first time I ever ran into Frank, the tall, dry-witted humor guy that he was, was at the 84 Canada Cup in Calgary and Edmonton. And uh, and I was just like cub broadcaster with a microphone at the University of Alberta. He treated me so well. But he covered yeah. the 72 Summit Series. He covered a lot of world juniors at the uh, International Ice Hockey Federation, over 60 books into the Hockey Hall of Fame back in 1989. But there's a guy from Ontario that had to have had a huge impact on you, I've got to think. Yeah, no, 100%. Well, for one thing, so we were we, we were star readers in my family. So I, got, I grew up in Toronto. Uh, star was an, at the afternoon paper. It would be delivered at 4.30 in the afternoon. You'd be home from school. I remember I'd, I'd pull a star, pull a sports section out of that, spread it on the floor of the living room, be down on all fours, reading, you know, the... Frank's copy, Milton L., Jim Proudfoot, pouring over the standings. You know, I was interested in, in the NHL. I was interested in junior hockey. And so, so yeah, he was, you know, to me, he was like a writing hero. He was somebody that, you know, that was the great Frank Orr. So, you know, you get into the business and, you know, you go to Toronto for the first time and there's Frank Orr and you're a little bit, you know, shy around him and you kind of tentatively introduce yourself. And he was the most welcoming man. I mean, uh, you know, I, I would say there there are three people that I found to be incredibly welcoming in the industry when I first started. One was Frank, one was Fran Rosa of the Boston Globe, and one was Bob Verdi of, of the Chicago Tribune. And and I think that anybody, Steve Simmons would tell you the same thing, that they made you feel welcome. And, you know, ours is a, it's an interesting industry because we compete against each other, right? You know, like I, you know, I, I you know, Robin and I, if he wants to beat me on a story, I want to beat him on a story, you know, like we, and, and, a young me was very, very competitive, um, but but everybody who lasted a long time in the business could put that competitiveness aside when you when you filed your story and and then you go out for the dinner and you have a social in, encounter and uh, you know Frank was somebody that uh, would introduce you to people he would he would just he would just help you whenever you had a, a question or or a problem just just a really fine man and you know we we you know gradually became like really good friends because the one thing if you if people have been reading you know the obituaries and the appreciations of Frank is that Frank really enjoyed a night on the town and uh, and you have to imagine what that was like prior to the internet so today you can go on and and you know you're going to Philadelphia google Philadelphia restaurants and you know a hundred choices come up and you can read reviews and so on and so forth in those days it wasn't as easy Frank always had the Michelin guide, right? So, so what would happen is, you know, he'd look at the schedule and realize you're going to be in Chicago together. And he'd go, kid, you know, Michelin guide's got Le Paroquet as the number 12 restaurant in the United States this year. I got a reservation for tomorrow night at seven. 
uh, you know, what time are you getting in? And you'd say, well, you know, luckily I'm getting in at three. So you'd, you'd go out and it would be oh, it was so expensive. It was never cheap. <laughs> it always included a second bottle of wine. And Frank, by the way, also had a really, uh, had quite a sweet tooth. So most of these restaurants had one of those flaming desserts that you could order or, or something or a, or a souffle that you had to order, you know, at the very beginning of your meal, because they had to start cooking it, you know, with 45 minutes to go, they'd give you like a countdown. And so you'd, you'd leave there overserved, full and, and three hours of great conversation. And Frank telling all of those stories from his illustrious past growing up in, you know, farm country in Ontario and how he got started in the business. And it just, just, it, it, I use the word joy when I think about Frank you know, we're, we're, we're going to miss him. And, and you know, we, we've stayed in touch even though he has been out of the industry for a long period of time. But but you left an evening with Frank or just really happy, you know, because he, he just had such a positive outlook on life. And, and, and you know, frankly, not everyone uh, was that welcoming. Some of those people took the competitiveness thing to, you know, like shunning you socially and this and that. So not everyone in the industry was like that. But Frank was. Frank and Fran and, and Bob Verdi and some others that I'm forgetting. But uh, um, but, you know, just a really wonderful person. And, and I think that, you know, if you saw the Tribune on Hockey Night in Canada, um, you know, and, and, all, and the, the, the Professional Hockey Writers Association put out a, uh, a very nice obituary. And he, 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 he was sometimes, you know, there's sort of the anecdotal version of a guy and then there's the official print version of the guy. Frank was that same person. He really was um, a great influence on me and, and a great help when I started out. And I'm um, going to miss him. You know, Eric, I, I didn't have the chance to know Frank like you did, but I'll tell you this. And after he passed, I, Mark Spector put out a tweet about how Frank had helped him prepare for a series early. And he, he phrased it as uh, Frank was somebody, I was nobody at that point. I didn't even meet Frank till the world junior championship in Saskatoon in 91 and sharing the shuttle. And it was cold as hell all week there. But I remember, and Ben Kuzma and I were out there. And of course we'd worked together in Kamloops and you know, Ben, well, um, Frank made a comment over the course of a conversation that, you know, I was just been at the journal a couple of years, then moved up from Kamloops. And he said something along the lines of, well, you're here for a reason enjoy it in other words I sort of made my bones in the minor leagues and now I was at the journal and that was it just one conversation I remember for him yet he had something positive to say to a relatively young writer at that point yeah yeah and that's and that's what he was you know and and you know I have to tell you like I, I've sort of tried to model my <clears throat> career after that after his example too so I, I always try to say yes when you know with if somebody has a question or, or needs help um, you know, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm not everyone coming into the industry these days, you know, wants that, you know, uh, you know, and I, I, I think I said one of my things that the term mentor is sometimes overused and, and it can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But for me, a mentor is someone who a, you know, can dispense advice when, when needed, but, but just creates by, by example, um, you know, like a standard that, that you want to achieve yourself. And, and so uh, but what I would tell you is that, uh, you know, when I was a young guy starting out, knowing I was in over my head, knowing I had a lot to learn, my philosophy was always, you know, keep your head down, 
you know, keep your ears open, keep your mouth shut and try to absorb as, as, as much as you can. And, uh, and, and, you know, and, and it was people like, you know, Frank and, you know, and Franny and, you know, Hugh Delano from the New York Post, another really, you know, wonderful guy who, who really, who really sort of set the, that standard. And, but the other thing, you know, Rob, you're talking about, uh, you know, being in awe of people. I'll never forget the first Stanley Cup playoff I recovered was uh, 1981. And the Flames had a good run. They got to the semifinals before they lost to Minnesota. In the quarterfinals, they're playing the Philadelphia Flyers. And Philadelphia had four daily newspapers at the time. There was the Journal, the Bulletin, the Daily News, and the Inquirer. So that, you know, it was like a murderer's or of hockey writers. It was Jay Greenberg, who's in the Hall of Fame, Al Morganti, who should be in the Hall of Fame, Ned Coletti, who ended up running the Dodgers because he left the sports writing business, a smart man, and ended up having a career in baseball administration, and, and a man named Terry Brennan, who was, who was also very good. And I remember Simmons and I would go in there, and, and the Flames and Flyers played seven games that year. And we're reading four Philadelphia papers. And it was prose. It was fantastic. Jay Greenberg was writing for an afternoon tabloid. And every every story that he wrote was a masterpiece. Al Morganti, to me, the most underrated hockey writer in history, had a, had a very pleasing snark to his copy. He had, he had an edge. He was a guy, he covered the Atlanta Flames before they moved to Calgary and, and, and college hockey in Boston before that. He's, and he's, you know, see him on television still all, all after all these years. He was, he was such a talented writer and he was writing to a really tough morning newspaper deadline. And, you know, and, and, and they were really the, the big two, you know, Kaleni and Brennan were just sort of, you know, and, 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 and I remember saying to Steve Simmons at the time, I can only ever, I can only ever get this good. And, it, it, because they set such a high standard and, and they were only, you know, five, six, seven years older than, than, than us. So you realize that, you know, like you, you could learn fast and you could learn from reading people like this and interacting with them and, and just seeing how, how to do the job. So, yeah, it was, you know, I, I think that that's, that's what our industry has been, you know, like one generation learns from, from the previous one and hopefully passes those lessons on to the next one. Did you just use the term elegant snark? Did you just? Yes. Okay. Well, then that leads me into the Battle of Alberta before we start talking about <laughs> the real topical stuff. Because was there ever more elegant snark than watching the Flames and the Oilers back in the 80s? It's, it's, it's you know, I, I hear people talk about the Battle of Alberta now. And I think to myself, yeah, it's okay. It's all right. But when you go back to the 80s, that was, that was war. If I, I hate yeah. to use that term, but it just was so nasty. Elegant is probably the one, the word I want to use here, but you, you had a front row seat for that, Eric. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we could tell Battle of Alberta stories, uh, you know, for, forever and ever. In fact, you know, Robin brought up Mark Spector. When Mark was writing his book on the Battle of Alberta, he called me up once and said, I want to take you out to lunch and pick your brain. And, and so, you know, then, of course, then you, you have to sort of sort them through in your head because, you know, because there's so many of them. It's like, okay, how, how do I even want to prioritize that? What stands out the most? And then, you know, 10 things jump out at you at the same time. And uh, uh, I, I do remember, though, um, well, you know, let's start with uh, the sweater shredding, right? So, you know, uh, the big fight in, in Calgary, um, you know, Rise, Doug Risebrow and Marty sorely go at it. And, uh, and somehow Marty's sweater gets, gets pulled off and it gets into the penalty box. And Doug Risebrow with his skate blades. Yeah. Is to shreds, right? To shreds. And we're not even aware of that. We're, you know, we're, we're just making note of, of all of the fights and all the penalties and everything else. We walk into the visiting dressing room at the, 
at the saddle dome and on a hanger hanging from the middle of the dressing room is this Marty McSorley jersey in tatters. And of course, no context, right? It's just hanging there. It's like, what, what, what? And then of course, Slats comes in and says, this was Rise Brow, this was the penalty box and we're sending him the bill for the thing. And we burst out laughing because it's like, okay, we now have the lead for this edition of the Battle of Alberta. It was just, yeah, it was it was violent. You know, we, we always talk about the violence. I mean, the hockey was really good. Oh, the hockey yeah. was really good. And, and what I would tell you too is that, you know, in the early days, Robin knows this, that, the, you know, the Flames were not competitive with the Oilers. So the Oilers were building this unbelievable dynasty and for the longest time, Edmonton was Calgary's kryptonite. So they had a real good team. And then they go up to Edmonton and Reggie Lemelin would be the goalie and they'd blow them out 9-2 and Reggie would give up a goal on the first shot. And so they were not competitive. And and the only time that they were ever really competitive was when, you know, I was, I remember writing, it's Bob Johnson was coach at the time. That, and, and, John, and Johnson never framed this as a tactic, but I knew that this was what they were thinking. If the games lasted three hours or more, Calgary had a chance. If it was strictly a hockey game, they had no chance. And so the Flames realized that they needed to, to have all of these Battle of Alberta distractions, the fights, the brawls, to get the Oilers off of their game. Because if it was just hockey, back and forth, back and forth, they weren't good enough. Not in the early to the mid-80s. They did eventually get good enough because you know most of what Cliff Fletcher did in the 80s, knowing the way the division structure was, the only way you're going to win any championship was you had to get out of your division. To get out of the division, you had to get past the Oilers. And so they built a team that brought in, they brought in the guys like Rise Brother, brought in John Tonelli. Um, you know, Mike Vernon was was key, you know, getting a goaltender that could actually stop the puck against Edmonton. His cockiness and 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 so forth, uh, just the way he carried himself was really important. And, you know, and then they traded for Gilmore, they drafted Newendike. Eventually they got competitive with them. And for the longest time, they, they were two of the three best teams in the NHL. And so the hockey was fabulous and when it, when it started to become competitive series it was just so much fun to cover i remember one time talking to yvonne lendl the tennis star and he had become part of the hartford whalers ownership group and um george johnson and i were there covering a game in hartford and they arranged for us to meet him in his private box and we did a feature on, on yvonne lendl so we're talking about tennis star turned hockey that you know and then the interview's over and then he starts talking about the Canada Cup. I think it was the 84 one. And he and extolling the virtues of, of the Canada Cup. And then, and this was the surprising thing, he says, that's the best hockey I've seen since that series between you guys and the Oilers, you know, like in you know months before. And it was like the two of us are looking, you know, how did you, Yvonne Lendl, happen to see, you know, the Battle of Alberta in, in you know, Hartford, Connecticut? And he said, well, there's this new station in the States called ESPN, and they were showing all of these games. And he said, I would stay up in the middle of the night because I couldn't turn away from it. It was, it was talking about the 84 series. Of course, I left there thinking, wow. You know that this has registered on the greater scene when Yvonne Lendl is staying up late at night watching the Battle of Alberta you know, on the east coast of, of, of the United States is fascinated and riveted by it. And, and it was. It was it was really fun to watch and fun to cover. Because we only have you for three hours. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> let, let's take it from that to what we're now seeing with the Canadian, all-Canadian division, which... I'm yeah. I'm prepared to accept for a year, but I'm missing seeing these American teams. Sometimes I, I just heard that that St. Louis and the uh, Coyotes played seven games in a row. It it seems kind of crazy to me. But what are your thoughts on what we're seeing here with the this all Canadian division? Are you liking it? 
Yeah, oh, I, I do like it. And uh, and I've always been, uh, that would be a soapbox that I would climb on even back in my Globe and Mail days about, you know, should there be an all-Canadian division? And the answer, the practical answer is always going to be no, because television wouldn't allow it. Um, you know, Gary Bettman, who basically has his way with the National Hockey League, doesn't think it's a good idea. Um, but I like to jump on that soapbox because, again, you know, when think about when, Montreal and Toronto would come to, to Calgary and Edmonton in, in, in the early days. You know, the people, you know, would be cheering for Guy Lafleur, you know, at the crowd. And 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 all of the Leaf fans who were, you know, who settled in, in Calgary were there to watch it. And, and the, 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 we just need to see, I think, those teams more often than we do right now. Under the, the current schedule, you know, you, you see them once a year. It's appointment viewing for fans. I think that there's a way of... Um, amending the NHL schedule so that you can do what you talked about. You see the American team. So that means, you know, Crosby comes to town and, uh, you know, Panarin with, with the Rangers, all the great amount. But, but I think they need to figure out a way of getting a little bit more Canadian content here. So some, something between what we have today and, and, and sort of going back to the, the way things were before the, the pandemic, I think is, is the right answer. And, and from what I can gather, there is some internal dialogue, uh, to to make that happen if they can so you'd have to you know create a little bit of an uneven schedule um but but there there is a way but but i, I love it you know i i just go back to you know prior to the pandemic in january of last year you know uh, the leafs came out west and they played winnipeg and they played edmonton they were great games and and you know they it was you know Matthews versus McDavid or Matthews versus versus Lina. they were high scoring they were wide open and i remember writing at the time uh, i think i could find the column, uh, you know, wouldn't it be great if we saw more of this? And now we are seeing more of it. And I think it is pretty fantastic. Eric, uh, one of the things that's been discussed during how COVID has turned everything upside down, I've heard some people talking about seeing benefits in the baseball type schedule, where it's maybe not three or four games, but maybe a couple, even if you double up, would you like to see two games at a time between uh, teams around the NHL where you cut down on some of the travel and get that baseball style schedule? Yeah, no, a great question, Robin. And, and, and yes, I, I, I would like to see that. And, and I do think that also is coming. So when, again, when, when they sort of assess how everything has gone this year, I think one of the things that they'll find from the managers and the players are speaking out about it already is that they like the idea of if you're going to play a team twice anyway, why not, Play them back to back, and then a lot of it, it, a lot of it has to do with travel. Players will tell you that um, if you're playing Tuesday and Thursday in Toronto, it means you don't have to get on that. Even though it's just like a short shuttle flight to, to Montreal, it's unpacking, you know, packing up everything in your hotel room, putting everything on the bus, you know, eating on the bus, flying. Even though it's 45 minute flight, and then getting to the next city and then into the hotel and so on and so forth. It, it takes three or four hours and, and you arrive in the middle of the night and, and it messes with your body clock. And so to be able to simply go back to the hotel after a game, have a meal, relax in a, in a normal fashion and, and then be able to have a good night's sleep and then have a practice in that city and then play the next day or even play, you know, like a Tuesday and a Wednesday and then move on to, to the next city. I, I think there's a lot of value to it. I, I think that the stress and strain of travel in any year, in a pandemic year in, in, a, in a regular NHL season, um, you know, creates injury issues. It creates fatigue. It, it I think it diminishes the, the product on the ice. I, 
better rested players is going to make for better hockey. And so, so yes, I, I, I like the idea of more back-to-backs. And I will tell you that on many, many of the general managers that I've spoken to also believe it. And they are essentially the gatekeepers of the game. So uh, it won't be as nearly prevalent as it is this year, but I, I, I do believe going forward, we're going to see more of that than we have in the past. Interesting story about what's going on in the desert. And, uh, you know, we all love those uh, side trips to Phoenix to watch the Coyotes. But, man, they've sure done a lot of things wrong. One, the, the arena's on the wrong side of a metropolitan area of, I don't know, 4 million people. All the Canadians are over in Scottsdale. That's a 45-hour trip yeah. just to get over there. Are they ever going to get that fixed? I don't know. Um, uh, there's there's a part of me that says no. Uh, a, a lot of what you know will or won't happen there, I think, is dependent upon getting a, an arena uh, in a in a more central location. Because as you say, you know, way way out in Glendale. I mean, it, it, like if you ever go to the the actual building and stay at the Renaissance beside it, and there's that great plaza there, it, it, yeah. it's great. But but nobody can you know that ring road traffic on a Tuesday night is is something that, that a lot of people just don't want to, to deal with. So any any long-term success has to be uh, in, a, in a new arena. I mean, Robin, you remember, we, we would go there in the early days when, when they first moved there to, from Winnipeg, they were playing in the same arena as the Suns and it would be downtown and those buildings were full. You know, I, I was there with the Flames a bunch of times. I was there covering playoff series. I remember being there one time for, for a Phoenix-Detroit game because I was, it was 97 or something like that. And I was trying to catch the Red Wings to do a, a Stanley Cup preview or something like that. And so I was I was in the building for for lots of different opponents. And it was great. It, it, it did very, very well. Um, you know, the building was not perfect because it, there was all those obstructed few seats because of the basketball on the one side. Um, but I, so I think that, that there is enough interest in the sport that it could make it there if the building is is fixed or, or if they get if they get a new building. But I also believe that deep down the NHL has it's tried and tried and tried and tried and tried to make it work there. And one reason that they haven't gone into Houston yet is because if Phoenix eventually does implode, if it if it turns out that it just isn't going to go there, they have a very easy uh, market to relocate to. And so, you know, like five years from now, either they'll have the new building and, and they'll be on the right track or it will be operating in Houston, I think. Well, the thing is, Eric, and you touched on it, uh, America West Arena was imperfect. You had the seats hanging almost over the glass in the one end. Yeah, yeah. You had the press box, which was basically in the stands, mm-hmm. and you couldn't see anything. They had the Fred Flintstone uniforms, <laughs> and they had that hokey half moon that came down that was lowered down but the building was full mm-hmm. people cared about hockey um i just don't think you can go on ad nauseum trying to make it work there and we all know how gary bettman likes to make things work and bless him for it he stood up for edmonton during a time when it was sketchy here mm-hmm. but at some point you got to get into a place that cares and it might be just as easy to get into a place that cares that already has an arena as building a new one down there. Don't you think? Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's why I say, yeah, I, I agree. Like Houston is a market. One of the reasons that they wanted, they continue to want to be in Phoenix is because it is 
you know, a, a fast growing metropolitan area. It's a big television market in the United States. Gary Batman will often talk about the NHL's geographic footprint. And most of what's happened in terms of expansion in the past however many years has to do with that geographic footprint, right? So why are they going into Seattle? Because they need a, you know, like a neighbor franchise for Vancouver. Vegas filled in a, an important gap for them. And, and so I don't think they would have been as relentless defending Phoenix to the point where they were operating the team themselves if they didn't value it as a market. It's the market that they like. But Houston is also the what fourth biggest city in, in the United States and a massive television market as well. So you don't lose very much if you relocate uh, you know, Phoenix to Houston. And, you know, I wonder, I, I used to believe, guys, that uh, that the NHL would, would settle on 32 teams and that would be it because there's such symmetry to it. You know, four, eight-team uh, divisions and, and, you know, you can... It just, it just, you know, it, it's not unbalanced the way the NHL has been at different times. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized that, that that's short-sighted, that I think that they will continue to grow the league in time, not anything imminent. And one possible solution would be to move this Phoenix franchise to Houston, wait for things to settle down in, in, in Phoenix, and then, you know, Maybe five years from now, when they do a you know the expansion to the thirty third, thirty fourth markets, you you put an expansion team in in Phoenix and start from scratch in a new building with new ownership and discard that history because that's always going to you know tag along after them. I mean they've 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 as you point out, Robin, they've had a very checkered <laughs> time of it uh, there, and maybe you know the, the best thing for that market to start with a clean slate at, at somewhere down the road. And, and I, again, I, I always like to get on the, on the Quebec hobby horse and yeah. people always accept me of wanting to go there because that's where the greatest dining in North America is. That, that is a little bit of a factor, but, but what a great market. I mean, Robin, you know, when, when I loved Winnipeg and, you know, I hated to see Winnipeg lost. I love going back to Winnipeg and, and, you know, I, Quebec's got a building, fervent following. I get it. It would be a small market team. It would be, you know, hockey's Green Bay, but I think you could have a hockey's Green Bay. There, there's a charm to it. Um, there's a great rivalry with uh, with Montreal. You know, sometimes you, you, you have to look past the bottom line and just think about, about the history of the game and, and where the game matters. And it matters in Quebec. And I think Quebec deserves a second franchise. So hopefully somewhere down the road, I don't think it will happen with this current leadership group, but but you know Gary Bettman isn't going to be there forever. I mean, we, he and I talked about it at the outdoor game in Regina. Uh, I was look, doing a look ahead. You know, what's the next decade going to look like? And I said, is there going to be a new commissioner ten years from now? He did the math in his head, and I think he ended up he was going to be seventy six or seventy. He said, "No, nah, I can't see myself doing this full time in ten years." So you know the you know at some point he is going to step down. I think it's going to be after he passes Clarence Campbell, so he has the longest serving tenure as a NHL, Clarence Campbell was the president, but I think he wants to last one year longer than Clarence. That's just my hunch. I just, I've never heard it from him, but I, but there will be new leadership. There will be um, a, a new visions for the game. And, and maybe, you know, 10 years from now, when they're looking at adding the 33rd and 34th teams, that, that will be the solution. Uh, you know, again, if, if we could wave a magic wand, let's move Phoenix to Houston. And five years from now, when we're doing the next expansion, let's put teams in Phoenix and, uh, and, and Quebec. So, I'd be happy with a 13-team NHL. So Quebec City. So I'm thinking fondue, beautiful wine, Grand Dallet, uh hockey fans that really know the sport. I mean, it just it, it just seems like it's a no-brainer to me. I, I, and having gone to a couple of games there, 
back in the day when I worked for the Jets in 1991. It was it was so it was such a great time there and 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 you're but you're right when you're covering hockey whether it's uh, electronically or writing like you guys were it there's taking in that experience there's just so much every city has its positives and their negatives and I'm like you I like going into all these other places everybody talked about Pittsburgh being a, a dumpy place I love going to Pittsburgh and mm-hmm. Lamont and yep. the restaurants and all that kind of stuff that. Every place has got so many positives about it. It's just we're living in a world that's it's too easy to be negative, isn't it? Yeah. No, 100%. Well, the, why do people who play for the Buffalo Sabres stay in the area, right? Because yeah. Western New York is a pretty great place. Yeah. It's a pretty great place. You know, Scotty Bowman never left. I mean, he's still got his – he's in Florida most of the time now, but he's still got his place in Western New York, and, and he developed roots there. And lots and lots of people do because, you know, like the, the downtown area, yeah, not great, but – but the area surrounding that is pretty, pretty, pretty special. <laughs> it's it's funny you'd mention that. It became a it became a standing joke on the Oilers plane. Todd Marchant was from there. Every time we'd be flying into Buffalo, whether it was Doug Wade or somebody else, oh geez, Toddy, here we are and back in this backwater, this dog shit town. And he'd get so pissed off, he'd get red in the face, and he'd start <laughs> reciting all the wonderful things and all the wonderful areas where you could live. Starting with the anchor bar. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But but you know what? Buffalo had fine dining too. I mean, it, like all these places have have something to attract them to. And you know, we were, we kind of started with Frank Orr, and uh, and and that that would be you know. I remember so you talk about Buffalo. How about Detroit? You know, I remember one time Frank calling up, and we were in Detroit one of those years that they were winning championships, and the the Rattlesnake Club. Right. The Rattlesnake Club was the hottest place there because you know, Frank would pull out his Michelin guide. And so we would go and we'd eat at the Rattlesnake Club and it would be on the river. And, and I mean, you know, you go out to Gross Point, uh, you know, there's there's lots to recommend every market in the National Hockey League. And and I think that I honestly believe that you know, this is one area where Gary Bettman and I actually agree. You know, there are some weak franchises, you know, Florida uh, is not great in Sunrise. But again, Robin, we were at that downtown Miami arena during that whole throwing rats on the ice craze. I was actually in the building, by the way, when the, when the, the original rat trick is happening, a game against the Flames to the work where Scott Mellenby scored two goals and, and John Van Beers. I was standing in the, at John Van Beers' locker when he told this story. It's how this whole thing started. He, somebody asked him a question, it wasn't me, about Scott that Mellenby, and he said, yeah, he had a rat wreck because he had the two goals and he killed this rat in the dressing room before. And then it was like, ooh, okay, we can use that. And, of course, it spawned this great uh, um, you know, movement. And uh, they got to the final that year. The building was full. It was exciting. It was you know, Miami can work. It, it, it just has to be the right, the building has to be in the right place. So I think every, Gary Bettman believes, and, and I believe too, that in, if the building is right, if the team is marketed right, if the team is, is run right by, you know, by a hockey operations department that knows what they're doing, every one of these markets can work. Every one of them can work. And so we'll see, you know, that it's not a perfect world and, 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 you know, there are sometimes imperfect people running teams and, and, and they have problems, but, uh, um, but you know, it's, uh, you, no matter when you travel with an NHL team, like Robin and I did, you could find something interesting to do every single night in every single city we visited. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. And if you, if you couldn't, then you weren't worth looking hard enough. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
Hey, listen, we, we have to get you off to a meeting. I have to take my medication. Robin's just <laughs> want to go out and have a cigarette, I guess. I don't know. Uh, we got to do this again, though, sometime. Waiting this long is, uh, I feel embarrassed that we've waited this long to get a hold of you because one of my favorite times in Calgary when I was living there was going out for wings and beer with you one night, and the stories just kept coming and coming and coming. It was supposed to be an hour dinner, and I think we probably went around three or four hours. It was just so much fun. Thanks for this today. All right. My pleasure. Good luck. Thanks, Eric. Okay, we're back kind of wrapping things up on episode 45 of The Outsiders. Okay, hey, listen, on that sponsorship thing, what did you think? Was it a little, maybe a little too American or, what, what like, thoughts? Um, well, I kind of had a couple of Frank Pellico moments in there while it was playing. Reminded me of the uh, Grand Master himself in Chicago and how we all remember uh, the sounds coming out of that building. But I think the... Uh, I don't know. Uh, how much are they willing to pay? That would be my big question. L- let me stay on that. I'll I'll get back to you next week on that. But, uh, yeah, Frank oh, Pellico, oh, by the wait. way, still playing the pipe organ at the United Center, if I'm not mistaken, correct? I think so. Unwritten. Great man. Wonderful time. And, uh, yeah, that, that's honestly, I know that's probably not what crossed a lot of people's minds, but that's the first thing that crossed my mind. A couple of things I quickly want to touch on before we uh, disappear here. I've been entertained greatly by how paranoid the Canadian hockey fan bases have been through this season so far. It just seems if you win three or four in a row, everybody's great. You lose three or four in a row, it's like the end of the world. And I'm mm-hmm. wondering how long it's going to stay that way. Ottawa have won a few games here. I don't, I mean, they're out of it, but are they? Uh, they're feeling a little better about things. The Toronto Maple Leafs have been at the top of the heap of the Canadian division and have lost some really weird games lately to make you wonder, okay, they're beatable, but how legit are they to win it all? Your thoughts? Well, they 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 certainly shot themselves last night. Let's oh. put it that way. You know, you don't want to give up a 5-1 lead at any time, but... Uh, you know what? And it drives some people batty and I get it, but you know, the Maple Leafs look like a pretty good hockey club. You're going to have, you know, you have overreaction both ways, right? Bryn, you know this. Yeah. The Leafs win a couple of fans there, start talking about the, the Leafs and other people in other cities or, Oh, don't go planning the parade route yet, but we're the same here in Edmonton. I mean, I think the Oilers have lost twice in their last eight games, but they play a stinker against the Jets last night, and everybody's ready to open a bowl on them. I mean, uh, there's going to be ups and downs, and last night they stank uh, defensively. The goaltending wasn't great. But they I almost won it. They almost won. Well, yeah. It's better, it's better that than people shrugging because what you don't want is who cares. Yeah. So that's one of the fun things about this Canadian division right now. The bragging rights uh, that you get. It's fun to make fun of the Canucks. It's fun to make fun of the Flames if you're a fan. Fun to make fun of the Oilers right across the country. Um, you know, 
no, no different schedule, different uh, alignment this year, but same old things. People get way too carried away too quickly one way or another. Hey, and one non-related story. Well, I guess it's related to hockey, but it made me laugh this week. There were uh, these pictures of Tom Brady who looked a little tipsy. And I'm thinking, okay, so why is that a big story? He's got he's got every right to go out and have a little bit of fun based on the way his season rolled out. But the part of the story that I I thought was funny was there's a shot of him on one boat because they their parades in Tampa and they've done a few lately. Uh, they parade via boat, right? They don't do it down a main street like most places. Anyway, there's a picture of him throwing the Lombardi trophy from one boat to the next. And I'm thinking, Oh my God. Now there's a couple things. One, if he's throwing anything, he's probably going to be pretty accurate. I think we've seen that, but I thought to myself, if that thing was not caught by the guys on the other boat, that would have sank like an anchor. And then we really would have had a story. I see that the people who designed the trophy won an apology because of the way the trophy's being handled. And I'm thinking these guys, the Stanley cup has been through way worse crazier stuff than that they fished it out of numerous swimming pools it's been it's horses have been eating out of it people little babies have been in it it just made me laugh I, somebody somebody should tell uh the folks down in the u.s that the lombardi trophy yeah i know it got thrown from one boat to another but uh it could have been worse we've seen far worse with the stanley cup well you know, you never know. I mean, had it been an incomplete pass, maybe maybe we find Jimmy Hoffa down there. I don't know. Ouch. When you're, but I tell you what, I, to me, now we haven't seen everything because thank goodness, at least the players would be saying this from the 70s, 80s, uh, even 90s. Not everybody had a camera in their phone. So we don't know the length of all these celebrations where you hear about them after the fact. But to me in the modern era, this was a minor. It was a little bit of fun. Uh, Alex Ovechkin set the standard, I think. I mean, he's got it in the fountain. He's got it here. He's got it there. He had a hell of, hey, you busted your ass to get the trophy. Nobody means anything disrespectful. Go have some fun when you finally get your hands on it. I'm with you. Hey, uh, before we disappear, we do have to thank uh, the Macintosh Group for their sponsorship the Macintosh Group at Remax River City. Uh, we're happy to have them on board. I don't know about those other guys that are kind of sniffing around a little bit, but uh, they're very excited about uh, their latest promotion for sellers. We mentioned it off the top of the show. Uh, do go to their website and take a look at this. It, it, it's neat. It's macintoshgroup.ca, or you can give them a call. Talk to any of the team members at the Macintosh Group at 780-464-0075, but they're letting people now take a look at listings before they actually hit the market. They're giving you seven to 10 days. So it, what it does is it builds up interest and it's also get some of the places right now are getting multiple offers and everybody thinks that the, uh, the economy and real estate has been taking a bit of a kicking. I'll say here in the Edmonton market, it's just gone a bit of a different direction. It's still been pretty good. So give Brent a call and talk to everybody over there. The other thing, too, a big thank you once again to Eric DeHatchik for joining us. we got to get Eric on more than once every year. He's got mm -hmm. a million stories. We talked to him for 45 minutes today, and it didn't seem like it was 45 to me. But anyway, uh, that's pretty much it. Anything else we got to talk about? Oh, by the way, you can reach us via email, 
The Outsiders at Shaw.ca. That's The Outsiders at Shaw.ca. If you have any guest ideas for us, we'd love to hear from you. Also, take a look at our Twitter account. The handle's pretty simple. It's at Outsiders2020. And also tell your friends, and this is a big thing with retweets, send it out to your buddies and uh, tell them to subscribe or hit up our RSS feed. And we're on Apple, Google, Spotify, Pocket Casts, all of them. And uh, we'd love to have you on board on a regular basis when we release a new one. We're day late here because of the holiday uh, Monday, but uh, we would love to have people on board. And we're actually thinking of launching on Twitch, a streaming service, which uh, a lot of people have heard about and old guys like us don't know what it is. I- I've been I've been really kind of interested in uh, going the Twitch route, but uh, feedback on that would be really appreciated as well. Robin, are we forgetting anything? No, I would just uh, uh, ask that any, hey, don't get thrown off by the uh, interest by the uh, Oregon guys. If you're interested in coming on board and talking to Brent and I, we'd love to have you. We love what we're doing. Um, Get a hold of us if you feel the need. That's exactly right. I'm 100% with you on that. And uh, like I said, another show coming up next week, and that's Podcast 46. This has been Podcast 45. Robin, we'll talk to you later, okay? You certainly will. Thanks, Brent. Okay, fine. Bye-bye, boys! Have fun storming the castle!